You can get consolation from all sorts of falsehoods, but because it's consoling, it doesn't mean it's true. No. There are a lot of very religious scientists around. Science. There is no evidence for any kind of supernatural being of any you kind. Think people should not have a choice of what to do with their body. Anti-murdering the unborn. And I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need But this. why should I believe? Well, because it's the truth. Welcome back to the Science, Faith, and Reasoning podcast. Today we've got a real treat for you. We're coming back to our favorite progressive Christian, Colby Martin. Um, I noticed that he wrote a sermon called Unclobbering Leviticus. So I'm sure you can guess what this is about. It fits his whole unclobbering vibe that he's got going. Um, so let's check this thing out. And the tagline on the video, just immediately, my first impression here, um, he said, it's a bad idea to call homosexuality an, abom an abomination. Um, which is interesting because right off the bat, you know, the Bible does say that, uh, not in those, in that exact phrase. It says, basically, if you lie, if a man lies with a man as he would with a woman, and we'll get into the Le Leviticus and Romans 1, uh, you know, exchanging the natural relations for what is unnatural and going against God's design, that it is wrong, that it is an abomination. So you're basically saying, you know, the Bible ha is having a bad idea here, or God is having a bad idea uh, but we're going to get into this. So let me show you this first little clip. I'm certain that most Christians would never intend to communicate these sorts of things, right? They don't, they don't mean to suggest that gay people are vile or gross or subhuman. Most Christians, I'm sure, try and, and do their best to be loving and kind. And yet I wonder if they realize what it feels like to be told you are an abomination. Because there really is no way to feel loved and be told that you are a disgrace. So he says he wonders if Christians know what it feels like to be told you are an abomination. And I would say, yes, we do, because all of us are participating in sin that is an abomination. Everyone. We've all gone against God's design. It's not just people who participate in same-sex sin. There are Every Christian has participated in some form of abominable sin. Um, so, yes, we do know what it feels like. Now, of course, it is different for, you know, straight people. They're not being—I understand that people, um, you know, that gay people are being persecuted by Christians in a way they shouldn't be, and straight people aren't having to experience that. But Christians do know what it means uh, to be told that you are living in sin— um, that is an abomination to God. You know, everyone has participated in some of that sin. Um, so here's another clip I want to show you. But before we get to our verses, I want to talk briefly about the Bible and homosexuality. Several years ago, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who had just recently come across the works of uh, the author Brian McLaren. And now Brian's writings have impacted me on a profound level in my spiritual journey. And so I was eager to sing the praises of him to my pastor friend. After a few sentences of, of sharing to my friend about Brian's passion for things like social justice and his pastoral love for people on the fringes of society, my friend's first question back to me was, but where does he stand on the issue of homosexuality? I was taken off guard because it, in, in my mind, I couldn't fathom what that had to do with anything. 
And yet the question was being presented as a sort of a litmus test, a gauge to determine whether or not Brian could be trusted, whether or not my friend would bother picking up one of his books. I knew that my friend would have consumed one of Brian's books like a fresh spring in a dry desert. He would have been challenged and refreshed and inspired, but it was clear that none of that would matter if Brian's position on homosexuality was anything other than it's an abomination. So in other words, he's asking... Um, so in other words, asking to see what a pastor thinks about same-sex marriage or relationships in order to see if they can be trusted um, is wrong in order, uh, according to Colby Martin. But honestly, I would think now more than ever, this gay litmus test that he's talking about is actually pretty appropriate. You know, if you're wondering if someone, some pastor, or some new uh, Christian leader, if they're really grounded in the Bible, a gay litmus test is actually a good thing because, you know, if they understand what that means um, to interpret the Bible for what it says, you know, for what it clearly says, if a Christian is doing that, then you know they probably can be trusted pretty well. You know, if they're going against our culture and preaching what the Bible says, not what our culture says about same-sex relationships, then that person or that pastor is probably pretty legit. So to criticize that as a way of figuring out if a Christian's leader is based in truth, I think is, is pretty ridiculous to come at it from his angle there. Um, let me show you this other clip here at about 440. So imagine a person's surprise and perhaps even disappointment when they do a Google search for homosexuality in the Bible and they discover a measly seven verses in the Bible that appear to address this issue. Seven verses. Seven verses out of 31,173 aim their sights at same-sex sex acts. So he says you might be disappointed to find that there are very few verses that talk about homosexuality. Um, which is funny that he says this because just because the Bible, you know, doesn't address a certain sin very much, doesn't mean the Bible's not clear on that topic or that there needs to be more expounding on that topic in order for it to be clear. When it comes to, you know, same-sex interactions, the Bible is extremely clear and it doesn't have to talk about it more than he says it should. So here he goes on at time 505 um, and he says, um, here I'll show you what he says here. This amounts to 0.0002% of the entire Bible being devoted to homosexuality. And when you compare that barely even fraction of an amount of literary attention to the enormously over-the-top amount of energy and attention it gets from parts of the Christian world, it should feel uncomfortably awkward. <laughs> so yeah, he's, then he gets down to the math. So he's really breaking this thing down. And he says that the homosexuality conversation only takes up 0.00002% of the entire Bible. Um, so, I don't understand what his point here is. I mean, his point is, if it doesn't take up 10% of the Bible, we don't have to follow what it says. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, just because the Bible doesn't talk about something, you know, more than a certain percentage doesn't mean that we can't understand what it says about that. And if you've seen his other videos, you know that he basically thinks we can't understand what the Bible says at all. So, I mean, it is consistent with his position on other things, but it's, it's a pretty bad and, you know, ungrounded way to look at, at the Bible. 
And then later he uh, he compares this view of same sex marriage, I guess, to a analogy with Lord of the Rings. At times, it feels to me a bit like if someone were to suggest that the theme of J.R.R. Tolkien's three-volume masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, was exploring the domestic life and favorite recipes of hobbits, right? So he says, it would be like saying that the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, theme is exploring the domestic life and favorite recipes of hobbits. Um, This would be like saying that the theme of the Bible is you know, anti uh, same sex marriage or whatever. But no one is claiming that the theme of the Bible is, you know, only God's view of same sex marriage or relationships. Like, no one is saying that. I think another thing with progressive Christians that sort of, uh, sort of irks me is this view that regular Christians, your traditional Christians, are simply just like hitting people over the head with a Bible and criticizing them for their sin constantly. And I don't think that's an accurate representation of Christianity and how Christianity handles this topic specifically. I think actually there's a lot of grace uh, that the way with the way Christians are handling this topic. So anyway, he goes on here, uh, here about six minutes into his sermon. He actually gives my thoughts about, you know, these verses, um, especially in this, it's about Leviticus. It doesn't matter the quantity. You know, it is more about the quality. Is what the verses say clear? Is it consistent with, you know, the context of the book, of the chapter, of the Old Testament, of the entire Bible? You know, does it make sense? Do, can we understand it? And I think with same-sex relationships, we can understand this. This is something in the Bible that's clear, that we can understand. It's countercultural, and it's something that we should all, as Christians, come to terms with. Um, but at the end of the day, we shouldn't be trying to please our culture. We should be trying to understand what God's Word says about everything. Um, so here at time, at about 6.50 into the sermon, uh, he claims that, well, let me show you the video. And we learned the real reason why the cities were destroyed, not because gay people lived there, not because gay people did gay things there, but because the cries of the oppressed deafened the ears of a passionate and loving God. So here he claims that Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because of homosexual sins, but because the cries of the oppressed uh, deafened the ears of a passionate and loving God, I believe is his his word choice there. Um, you know, that could all be true. Um, now, I think he's got it a little misconstrued in that, well, here he says, you know, pride, oppression of the weak, and then he focuses on gang rape in this in this section too, and yes, he, you know he's listing all these other sins that seem to be uh, worse than, or I would say, are, are probably worse than, um, you know, same sex sin or whatever. But you know they were all part of sin, all part of their sin. It was a it was a sum total of a ton of different sins that were anti God's design for humanity to live. And it's not that God didn't destroy it just because of same-sex sin or just because of gang rape, but because, you know, their whole society as a whole had turned their back on God and turned to their own sin. And it was so overwhelming that God had to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're destroyed because of a lot of sins. Um, And he likes to list these things that are worse as if to say it's ridiculous that God thinks that same-sex relationships or whatever are sin as well. And 
you know, you can't just pick and choose, and it's not for us to determine what sin is. It's for God's word to determine what sin is. And, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to come at this, like, beating someone's head, you know, with a Bible and saying, this is a sin, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but for the Christian community to be teaching each other that it's not a sin, that we don't have to resist sin, I think is a serious problem, and it's something that needs to be addressed because that's not Christianity. You know, if you're not a Christian, it's not my place to come to you and be like, you're living in sin, you're a horrible person, and just, like, uh, criticize you. Um, but I think it is important that we understand that uh, we are all born into sin, and we need the grace of God, and we don't have to, you know, get down into the nitty-gritty details at first for someone who's not a Christian and just pick out everything they're doing that's wrong. Because everyone, especially those of us who are not Christians, even those of us who are and who have been sanctified for a while, we um, we still struggle with sin, and we can't just be attacking people. And that's not what I'm trying to do here, and I hope you understand that. At time, uh, about 7.54 into his sermon, he says this. And so now in session two, we turn to the book of Leviticus, the clobber passages that have armed the church with this phrase, homosexuality is an abomination. The book of Leviticus is the third book in what is called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It essentially functioned as the law book for the people of Israel, providing the regulations for the people of Yahweh regarding worship in the tabernacle and instructions on ceremonial cleanliness, holy days, etc. Traditionally, the authorship of Leviticus is attributed to Moses and presumably records words directly given to Moses by God during their time on Mount Sinai. So he says that Leviticus is attributed to Moses and presumably records the words directly given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And again, this is one of those things where the way he talks about the Bible, it's so, and he says this himself when he talks about, you know, the better way to tell the gospel or whatever, his perspective there. Um, it's like he, it's very tongue-in-cheek, almost sarcastic. It's like, yeah, of, as if God actually spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's like, yeah, he did. We believe that. You know, there's nothing wrong with believing that. Okay, so then he talks about how Leviticus is written specifically for Israel and specifically for the tribe of Eli. So he's trying to get into, you know, it's kind of like those same people who make the argument that uh, you should be able to have um, women deacons and women's pastors because Corinthians and Ephesians uh, were written just for those churches at those in those contexts and that it doesn't apply to us today. And I just think that's not the case with most things. Now, there are some things that are like this. Um, for example, like God commanding Israel to uh, go take over the Canaanites or something like that or to fight some tribe or they're going to win this battle. Like clearly that is like a time-sensitive, specific command that is going to be uh, followed and complete forever. It's not something that is like binding to us today. Obviously, we as Christians today aren't trying to go out um, and take over the Canaanites. Like that's clearly done with. Um, but some things, these general commands, are ap applicable for Christianity. Um, and I understand that some things are that like time sensitive, sort of like context specific things, but a lot of them aren't. And I don't think, especially if you look at the New Testament um, with Romans 1, it's very clear that these laws governing sexual behavior for Christians are still applicable to us uh, today. So um, just to read you what the New Testament says about this, because 
you know, he focuses so much on Leviticus, and he has an unclobbering uh, Romans 1, 2. But it is Romans 1, and it is the New Testament that gives us a lens by which to, you know, uh, interpret the Old Testament law. And in Romans 1, it reiterates God's view of same-sex interaction. It says this in 26 and 27, Romans 1, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, so clearly there's a reiteration in the New Testament that these same-sex interactions, same-sex acts, are still a sin. They're still wrong, and we should still, uh, as Christians, be prohibited from participating in this sin. We should resist this sin. Okay, um, so later he says that the Old Testament law was given so that the people who already had God's favor uh, could live differently and be set apart from the world or from the cultures around them, that it wasn't given for people to earn righteousness. And... It's tricky because there's like sort of the interpretation at the time versus how we see it now through the lens of Christ fulfilling the law. Uh, but I mean, I guess I sort of agree with this, but it was also, I think it was for the remission of sins. And there's passages about uh, the Israelites doing things and having offerings, you know, for the remission of their sins. Um, like, for example, in Leviticus 4, 1 through 6, um, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Um, so clearly there was parts of this of the law that were for, I think, the remission of sins. And there were procedures for them to follow after they had sinned to cleanse themselves. Now Christ has fulfilled the law for us today, and we don't have to do those things. The forgiveness of our sins is found in Christ and in what Christ did on the cross. So th I understand that there is a fulfilling of these types of things in the Old Testament, um, but some things haven't changed. You know, our guidelines for sexual behavior, I don't think have changed. And we look through that through the lens of Christ and the New Testament, how to interpret the Old Testament. And I think it's pretty clear, the guidelines for sexual behavior. Now, he gets into uh, Leviticus 18, and he kind of summarizes it and then reads the verse that is the obviously the one that is the most countercultural uh, today. So he gets down to it. Um, so here's Leviticus 18, so I'll let you see what he says about it. And so chapter 18 begins like this, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. The chapter continues on and addresses immorality as it relates to relationships, specifically sexual ethics. 
it lists a bunch of scenarios that were off limits for the people of God to live as the people of God, including you couldn't marry a woman and her sister, okay? Uh, you couldn't have sex with a woman who is menstruating. You couldn't commit incest, which is to have sex with relatives. Uh, you couldn't offer your babies to foreign gods. Uh, you couldn't have sex with animals, right? So these are some of the things in chapter 18 that Yahweh said, don't do these things. That's what they did in Egypt, and that's what they do in Canaan. And then we get to verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. All these things were done by the people in Egypt and the people in Canaan, but God says if you're to be my people, you can't be like them. You have to do things differently. So let's unpack this verse. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, for it is an abomination. So you'll notice, and he mentions this, um, same-sex interaction as a sin is listed right along with incest, um, you know, intercourse during, uh, during a woman's men menstrual cycle, um, adultery, and then, of course, uh, sex with animals. The verse specifically is verse 22, and it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So when you read that, you would think, you know, that's pretty clear. Um, that's about as clear as it gets, but no, Colby Martin has an alternative view. Believe it or not, uh, you probably expected this, <laughs> but you're going to see right here some serious mental gymnastics from Colby Martin. The phrase here translated in English as one who lies with a woman is an interesting Hebrew idiom, and there's debate as to exactly what that means. What does it mean to say as one lies with a woman? For instance, according to some Jewish exegesis methods of the Torah, when a generalization is followed by a specification, only what is specified applies. Meaning, the first part of this verse, a man shall not lie with a man, is the, is the generalization. The second part is, as you do with a woman. That's the specification. So seeing him reinterpret this is, is pretty, uh, pretty crazy. This would be like, to me, you know, if you woke up one morning and you have a note in your kitchen and it says, take out the trash. And then you're like, you get into that deep sort of uh, liberal philo philosophical mode and skepticism and you start reinterpreting. Can we really know what this actually means? Maybe it means don't take out the trash. And it's like, uh, it's pretty clear. I don't know how you got that from that. But that's the kind of stuff you see here with these progressive Christians. It's The Bible's pretty dang clear on a lot of this stuff, and somehow they find a way to reinterpret it. And it reminds me, uh, his little explanation here reminds me of when Owen, I think it's pronounced Strawchan, Strawchan's uh, response to him in that little discussion they had that I talked about in my last video. Um where he, he's explained, he's trying to explain to Colby Martin, you know, that you can actually understand the Bible. And he brings up this analogy where he says that, you know, this would be like if you told your kids you're going away uh, for the weekend or whatever, and you've got an older son and you have some younger siblings that he has to take care of. And you tell him while we're away, you know, feed the kids and take care of them. And you come back and none of the other kids have eaten, you know, none of them have been taken care of. They're all exhausted and crying. And you ask him, you know, your older son, like, why didn't you, you know, do what I say? And he says, well, you know, there's really no way to understand exactly what you meant when you said to take care of the kids. 
you know, I thought maybe that meant to starve them to death. And you would be, you know, clearly appalled by that response. But that's really Colby's response to the Bible. So can you imagine God's view of us when we completely try to reinterpret things that are clearly stated to us, commands that are very clear? You know, it's got to be infuriating. So here, uh, later on in his sermon at 1330, um, he says the following. So then, according to this exegetical method, this understanding, the prohibition is not against men lying with men universally, but only when it is done by someone who would normally, as it were, lie with a woman. The implication there being that the text is not referring to homosexual activity because at least one of the males in this scenario is heterosexual. This approach is further strengthened by the fact that all other sexual commands, right, all other sexual commands in Leviticus are straight-up categorical, don't do this. It is this verse, however, that has the qualification as with a woman. So he says, The prohibition is not against men lying with men universally, but only when it is done by someone who would normally, as it were, lie with a woman. And then he goes on and says the implication there being that the text is not referring to homosexual activity because at least one of the males in the scenario um, is heterosexual. So again, think about these mental gymnastics. Of course it means in a general sense that homosexual activity is a sin. You know, it literally could not be more clear. And my question for Colby Martin um, is, do you expect the law to have, you know, five paragraph explanations for every single command? And I know there are some gigantic explanations like we looked at in Leviticus 4 for the sin offering of the bull or whatever, but you can't expect that for everything. Um, You know, if it's clear, it's clear, and you just don't need anything more said about it. So, according to Colby Martin, and this is the little takeaway there, is he's basically saying homosexual acts um, are only wrong if they're performed by a straight person. So, he's saying, you know, it's only wrong if a man lies with a woman, if that man normally lies with, or sorry, if a man lies with a man, if that man normally lies with a woman. So, only straight men lying with other men is a sin, but if you're gay, then it's okay to lie with another man. And it's, it's just not biblical. That just doesn't make any biblical sense. Um, so now, of course, it makes worldly sense. It makes sense to our sinful world, you know, to atheists, to relativists, to biblical skeptics. Um, but clearly, to biblical Christians, this makes no sense at all. But it does make sense to the world if you think about how relativistic they are. You know, to the world, it's like, oh, if you're straight and you lie with another man, then clearly that's wrong because that's against your feelings and what uh, you would normally like prefer or whatever. But if you're gay and you lie with another gay man, that's just you following your heart, you know, doing uh, what you've always you know, desired, and there's nothing wrong with following your desires. Uh, but there is something wrong with following your desires uh, when your desires are sinful. So again, as we can tell, you know, if it fits in line with our culture, if it's a perspective that does, you can expect Colby to have that view. So here at time 14, um, he says that all other commands are simple, um, but this one has a qualification with it. So he's saying like all the other commands, you know, they're very simple. You can't do this, uh, but this one has some a qualification. You know, 
a man who lies with a man, you know, if he normally lies with a woman. So I'm not, you know, I really don't know how to tackle that response other than the fact that I would say we shouldn't be erring on the side of sin. We should be erring on the side of God's word. And that's excluding, you know, the New Testament for now. If you just read that, you would think, okay, if God takes this so seriously, you know, regardless of the qualification, you know, it's pretty clear that this is wrong. Therefore, I probably shouldn't be trying to push the limits of my sin. I should probably be trying to push the limits to, you know, my holiness and trying to stay away from this sin if God calls it an abomination and takes it so uh, seriously. So for me, when it comes to this kind of stuff, or when it comes to just the Bible interpretation in general, I think there's a lot of power in the simple reading of a text and what it says simply. And I understand that there, you know, there's a lot of texts that are uh, symbolic, like in Revelations, we talk about like the dragon and the woman and the beast um, and the different animals that represent the different countries and how a lot of that is like sim- symbolism and like uh, metaphors and poetically written. And I understand that, but with things that are simple, like there's no reason to try to get crazy with the interpretations, just read it simply. And I think there's power in the simple interpretation of a text uh, of the Bible. So uh, when it comes to other time periods, and I think it's clear here that Colby really likes to follow our culture and society, you know, let the Bible tag along. Uh, but I think in other time periods, at least in America, I think we had a lot of biblical leadership, you know, trying to lead the culture with the Bible. And of course, Christians got it wrong a lot, and Christians got it right a lot. Um, and I think more often than not, they were right. But of course, when they were wrong, there was there was consequences to that. Uh, but when they were right, it was it was great, you know. Like faith produced, you know, an ethos in our country that produced a lot of freedom. And of course, you know, people were using the Bible to justify slavery, but people were also using the Bible to abolish slavery. Um, so I think they're right and they're wrong. But I think too, there was a lot of biblical leadership. And I think, you know, looking back, there was no biblical uh, crusade for you know, same justifying same-sex interactions. And there was no, you know, movement for that for a reason because there's literally no way to have a pro, you know, justifying same-sex marriage as a Christian. There's no way to do that through the Bible. That's why it's never happened before. Uh, But there was definitely biblical grounds for abolishing slavery. And that was one of the biggest movements against slavery. Like with William, uh, William Wilberforce, and some of the Quakers and um, a lot of the abolitionists. So then he goes into this uh, real in-depth conversation about tovah. So let me show you that. We get the word abomination from the Hebrew word tovah. Say tovah. Tovah, in short, was a term that described the things that, if done, would render an Israelite indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. They were essentially cultural taboos. They, these could be in a, in a ritual sense or in an ethical sense. The basic idea is that if you commit tovah, then you are no different from anyone else. So tovah uh, basically means abomination, something horrendous, or disgusting. So he says since tovah is a relative term used to compare Israel to other nations, it's simply just relative, and that doesn't really apply to us today. So at some level, tovah has a relative nature to it. 
You got to be careful with this relative term. Again, that's another trigger word for me. It's a very new agey, uh, progressive word to kind of just make light of anything and basically say that there's really no absolute uh, sin or evil. It's just relative to the context of the situation or whatever. It's like lines okay, depending on the context. Uh, you know, that's one of the common things you'll see. Um, and he, he goes on to say, like, not all things are tovah because they are inherently an offense. Rather, they were violations of a cultural division. Um, but according to this passage, if it's just about cultural division, I understand that's part of it. It's like being separate from the other nations. You know, the other nations were sacrificing babies to Molech, uh, which they were obviously, Israelites were obviously, you know, commanded not to do as well. Uh, they were having incest relationships. So if his point is that just because it's relative to be separated from the other cultures, I guess he's saying that all these other things are okay too. And clearly that, that just doesn't hold water because all of these other sins are pretty intense as well and pretty messed up. So clearly just because it was relative to the time or he's saying it was relative, or there's a relative nature to it, doesn't mean these other things aren't wrong either. And then he goes on to make another argument. And again, he has a, a lot of arguments and I'm not saying they don't make any sense at all. They make sense from a worldly perspective, but they don't hold water from a biblical lens. And here he goes on to say that, you know, other seemingly simple things were tovah. This is perhaps most telling when you read further in Leviticus and you discover what else was categorized as tovah, as an abomination to God. These things were tovah. Eating shrimp was tovah, an abomination. Wearing clothes from different materials was tova, an abomination. Planting different crops in the same field was considered tova, an abomination. These were all tova, and they, they violated the cultural boundary marker for the people of Israel, but they certainly were not, right? And they are not morally reprehensible acts. The point is, it isn't enough to just pull out our English Bibles, turn to Leviticus 18, and declare, look, there it is. Men having sex with men is an abomination. Therefore, homosexuality in any and all forms is sinful. Because that simply does not take into full consideration what it meant for something to be an abomination, to be tovah. So he mentions eating shrimp, wearing clothes from different materials, and planting different crops in the same field. So he's making the argument here that because eating shrimp was listed as an abomination and same-sex interaction was listed as an abomination, can we really take that same-sex you know, prohibition seriously? Because shrimp was an abomination. And again, you have to look at it through the lens of Christ fulfilling the law and how does the New Testament you know, speak on um, sexual behavior. And I think it's very clear, we already looked at Romans 1, and you understand, you know, that the New Testament is very consistent about, you know, the sexual behavior. And then with the food stuff, you know, you have that vision, I think it's a Peter's vision with, the, you know, the food coming down, um, and it's like, it's made whole again, it's made holy again. So, you know, we have other things that help us to interpret this old law, and understand he's just focused on Leviticus, but that's pretty important, and it makes a big difference. All right, so then he goes on to quote Leviticus 20.13, which says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 
So he says, Colby's argument here is that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, um, essentially. You know, that there were other things that people were to be killed for that were also not very serious crimes or serious sins. Um, so obviously I don't think people should be killed for these things, and no one does. Um, but of course it was a very intense law given to the Israelites to set them apart from the other cultures um, and for them to pursue righteousness. And it's still God's view and his design for human behavior is for, you know, opposite sex. That was the design in the garden. Uh, but his argument is basically the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Um, but really, you know, the consequence of sin is death, and we all deserve death. So for God to say that because we're caught up in a sin that we deserve to die is true, and we all deserve to die. Like, I've sinned a hundred times a day, and I'm maybe not even be conscious of, and I deserve to die for that. But God's mercy is that he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And again, we still have to interpret this through uh, the lens of Christ, uh, fulfilling the law and the New Testament, and what is reiterated in the New Testament. And again, it reiterates the guidelines for sexual behavior is under God's original design, one man, one woman in marriage. Um, so anyway, oh, and another point to this, which is going to get to one of the questions I have at the end, is that God does have sort of a system for punishing certain sins or the consequences of certain sins are more severe than other sins. So here at time 1910 to 1920, he says, uh, the most ridiculous sin to him is the one that says if a bull gets out of its pen and kills someone, that the owner should be held to account and should be killed. Or perhaps my personal favorite, if you're the owner of a bull who is known to be dangerous and you don't keep it pinned in, if it gets out and kills someone, you too are punishable by death. Uh, which it's funny to me that the one he picks out as sort of being, as he's real, you know, sarcastic about how ridiculous it is. My question for Colby is, is that not manslaughter? Should people not be held accountable for manslaughter? Um, so it's kind of funny to me that he picks out one of the ones that, to me, is probably the most logical, uh, that you should be held accountable for your animal that gets out of its pen and murders someone. Um, so anyway, that was just kind of interesting, the one that he picked out there uh, to complain about. But again, for him, you know, everything is relative, and we really can't be sure about what any of this means. Uh, here at time 2001, uh, into his sermon... Um, he did misspell the word do, and he put do. Then how do these two verses in Leviticus speak to that, if they do at all? So I just thought I'd point that out. So <laughs> Here at time 25, he asks, um, if homosexual sex acts are so wrong, um, then why are there no prohibitions against lesbianism? Well, if you look at a lot of almost everything in the Bible, it's really centered around like men because men are supposed to be the leaders and that's kind of where the law, you know, is focused. And it does say a lot about women as well. So, I mean, surely, sure, it's a point to bring up, but I do think it's also clearly assumed, you know, if a man lying with a man is a sin, by logic, because it's against God's design, which is why that's wrong in the first place, um, then by simple logic and actually using your brain, you would understand that uh, lesbianism, as far as uh, a woman lying with another woman, would also be a sin. 
So like another thing that progressive uh, Christianity really uh, bugs me about is that there's almost a focus that like everything needs to be spelled out. Otherwise, we can't know anything. And even if it is spelled out, as you see the way they reason through this stuff, we they still think you can't understand what the Bible says. And we actually have to use our brains, and we have to focus, um, and we can understand what the Bible says about this stuff, and we can infer what is a sin based on what we have. Uh, for example, there's no commandments against pirating uh, illegal music. But you understand that the commandments against stealing... Uh, you can understand that that's wrong without having a specific command that says pirating music is wrong. Um, So there's just really no discernment with the progressive Christianity, and that's something we have to use. You know, God gave us a brain, logic, and reasoning for a reason, and we can use that with what we're given to understand other things that may not be specifically listed. Here, uh, 26 minutes into his sermon, he says... um, you know, that now we know that some people are born with same-sex attraction. And back then, when, you know, the Old Testament was written, people thought every sin uh, predisposition was a choice. But some of these people are born with a predisposition uh, for same-sex attraction. Therefore, the Old Testament doesn't understand that context that we have now. Therefore, we don't have to follow it. Um, but that that doesn't matter. And I do agree that people are can be born... Uh, with a predisposition to be attracted to the same sex. That doesn't justify the sin. Like, they think genetically people are born with predispositions to steal or to be alcoholics or whatever. But that doesn't justify or give excuse for us to indulge in our sin and our selfish desires. We're all born into sin. So, of course, we're going to be born into all kinds of sin. You don't have to teach a kid to lie. They just do it. Because we're born into sin. Um, So that does not make excuse for reinterpreting the Bible because now we know that some people are born with a predisposition for this type of sin. So again, he brings up a lot of points. And obviously we're going through this entire sermon here. But if you actually look into them with, you know, just a little bit of using your brain, uh, you can show how these things are unbiblical. So then here at the end, we'll finish with this. He says, Christ fulfilled the law, which I agree with. So all we have to do now, this is where I disagree, um, is love God and love our neighbor. And then he kind of uses that as a justification to say, yeah, so you can really do anything. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, Christ has fulfilled the law. Therefore, you know, we don't have to obey. And it just brings me back to that verse. Um, I believe it's in John where Jesus says, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we're really loving God, we're resisting sin and trying to keep his commandments. So it's really sick to try to twist that and say that gives us justification to follow any sin that we want. And that's a very common misinterpretation of the Bible and misinterpretation of grace is that it gives us uh, free reign to do whatever we want and follow our own sin. So that really, I don't know, that just really irks me as well. So my final thoughts on this whole Kobe Martin and progressive Christian phenomenon, and I would, I would ask them this. If none of your views go against our secular 2021 culture, 
then you do not have a biblical worldview. If none of your views are going against the grain of a sinful, fallen, secular, satanic world, none of your views goes against that. How can you say you have a biblical worldview? Like the Bible is talking about grace and the gospel, which goes against the grain of the world. You know, that's how you know it's true. It's against our natural desires. It's against the sin that we're born into. It redeems us and brings us out of that. And if none of your views go against that world that we live in, then you probably don't have a biblical worldview. So that would be my final thought just on this whole progressive uh, Christian, Christian phenomenon. Okay, so now we're in the mailbag. We've got some really good questions and some recordings here. So let me pull up some of these recordings. Uh, let's see here. So here's our first one. Let's see if I can play it. Jesus himself never condemns homosexuality. So if you call yourself a Christ follower, how can you how can you condemn it if he never did? Okay, it's a good question. So since Christ did not specifically condemn um, homosexuality or same-sex acts, then how can I, as a Christian or as a follower of Christ, uh, condemn same-sex acts? And what I would say to that is the entire Bible is, in a way, Jesus' words because it's God's word. Um, Jesus is part of the Trinity, and the entire Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is God's spirit. So we interpret sin through the lens of the entire Bible and the context of all of it. And through that lens, certain things are condemned as sin. And we are told to resist sin. Uh, if we love God, we are going to obey his commandments. So, And it's not that I'm trying to sit up here and condemn um, homosexuals. I'm trying to condemn same-sex acts for Christians. Because if you're a Christian, you are called to be different and you're called to obey Christ. And if you love Christ, you will obey Christ. Um, so yeah, and another thing too, Jesus doesn't have to, you know, there's a lot of things Jesus didn't condemn that are sins. Like he doesn't have to condemn polyamory or specifically condemn polygamy for it to still be a sin. Um, we know what's a sin based on the entire lens of the Bible as well as God's original design. Because what sin is, is to go against God's design. Uh, if you've watched my video on missing the mark, you know, that's a good way to think about sin. Sin, um, you know, God's design as the bullseye on a target. And if we miss that bullseye, we're really sinning. So any variance from God's perfect uh, design for life and for behavior and for following him is sin. Um, and of course, God's original design for marriage was one man, one woman. Um, you know, for sex was one man, one woman in marriage. So any variance from that, premarital sex, um, adultery, or whatever is clearly um, sin. All right, so here's another video uh, question from the same person. The church, the Protestant church in particular, has done so much harm against homosexuals as people by hating them and rejecting them and, and really persecuting them in the past, um, which is clearly the opposite of what Christ did in his life. So... Why would we trust what you say when clearly you come at it from a very hateful and bigoted uh, way? Okay. Okay, that one hurt a little bit. There was a little bite on the end of that question. Um, so a couple of things. Yes, Christ did not, you know, hate the sinner. 
but Christ does hate our sin. And that's one of the places where I think Christians have got it wrong. And especially with like, I think it's, is it Westboro Baptist Church? Is that what it is? Yeah, you know, like holding up signs and stuff saying like God hates uh, gay people or whatever. So I know God loves gay people, but he he hates same-sex acts. And we have to separate, and that's where the church has gotten it wrong in the past, is they've condemned people and not condemning uh, the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin is really, you know, the saying. And also, I'm not trying to come at this from a place of hate or condemnation. The whole reason I'm even talking about this is because a quote-unquote Christian pastor is teaching that things that are clearly sins in the Bible, that there are not sins, and that Christians who are called to be different and who are called to obey Christ don't have to do that. And that's not true. So I have to address that. This video wouldn't even be made if it weren't for that fact. Um, So we as Christians have to hold each other uh, to account. And for non-Christians, and I should specify this, like this conversation about, you know, what is uh, considered sin in the Bible and, and what isn't, isn't really as relevant because if you don't know Christ, trying to follow his commands makes him, is pointless uh, because it's, it's for you as a Christian to obey Christ in order to grow closer with him and to be sanctified um, and to become more like Christ. But if you're not a Christian, that doesn't make any sense. It's like a foreign language to you. So anyway, so let's see. I've got a question from... Well, I'll tell you what, we'll do this one first, and then we'll get to the Instagram and another recording. You have a homosexual friend that you work with. What's the best way to approach that friend and share the gospel with them or talk to them about Jesus? Do you bring up their homosexuality? Do you completely ignore it? Do you tell them up front that what they're doing is wrong? Uh, What's the best way to witness to a gay person? Okay, that's a good question. Um... Again, I think, you know, with outreach, the focus uh, shouldn't be, you know, let's figure out what someone is struggling with and then let's go, you know, beat them over the head with their sin. Like, obviously, that's not the way to do it. So I think, you know, there does need to be a recognition that you are a sinner and that what you're doing with your life is against God's design. And by your very nature, you've been born into sin and, you know, you're deserving of eternal hell like that's the natural state of humanity in general so we have to understand that i don't think you have to get specific for them and be like i know you're struggling with this uh therefore like you're you know a terrible person the explanation is we're all terrible people in general and that's why we need christ i don't think you necessarily have to get so specific in that initial conversation but that conversation does need to come at some point you know, because you have to hold each other accountable. It would be just like with someone who um, you know is addicted to pornography and you witness to them and they get saved. That conversation about repenting and, you know, coming out of that sin needs to happen uh, just like it would with anything else. So I think you have to hold each other accountable um, if they're a Christian. If they're not, then really the main thing is getting them to understand that they are a sinner, they're in need of Christ. And once you start that relationship and you get saved, uh, then you can start to be sanctified. And you can't be sanctified, in my opinion, before uh, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. So that's got to happen. That's got to happen first. All right, let's see. I've got another 
question. Do you think it's a better method to just be upfront about it, that you're, you don't support homosexuality, that you think it's wrong, that you think it's immoral, and just co- condemn it up front, out front, straightforward? Or do you think some of these other churches, the way they do it, where, you know, which doors are open to everyone, and it should be in every church, but, you know, doors are open to everybody, everybody come in. We don't even address homosexuality. It's all about just uh, kind of this feel-good, Jesus loves you no matter what you're doing in life. Uh, do you think it's better to approach it where you condemn it out front or you just kind of don't address it and try to get the people to be saved first and then hopefully they'll work it out for themselves looking into the Bible? So that's a pretty related question. I think... Well, a couple of things. One, I would say the more different the church is from the world, um, the better. And I don't think we need to just be trying to be different just for difference sake. But if you're actually preaching the gospel and you're actually teaching what God's word says about, um, you know, things that are big in our culture right now, like abortion or same-sex marriage or whatever, if you're teaching God's truth on these topics, then the church really stands out. And in my opinion, it stands out as a light. And I think we shouldn't be trying to, you know, soften the gospel and soften what God's word says about our sin in order to be more culturally appealing. But with that said, it shouldn't be our intent to go out and just try to rub people, you know, the wrong way by yelling at them like Westboro Baptist Church does with uh, the sign saying God hates gay people, which isn't even true at all. Um. So I don't know. I think the church needs to be teaching things that the Bible actually says and being unapologetic about that. But also we need to love everyone, you know, as much as we possibly can. And again, if you really love someone, you'll tell them the truth and you're not going to try to lie to them or, you know, lie by omission about what is sin and what isn't. So I think you just tell the truth and, you know, you don't make it the focus of your church to be anti-gay because that's not what the church is. The church is pro-gay people because it loves gay people, but it's anti-same-sex acts because that is sin. So I think if you're loving people and Christians are loving people, then it's, it's going to work out because they're going to see Christ in us. And then if they get the Spirit of God in them and they get saved, then they're going to be convicted of their sin. And that's where that's going to change. All right, so I've got a question from... One more recording, and then we'll get to the written questions. All right, where did I put this one? All right. So I'm going to try to formulate this. Uh, let's see, how would I describe this? Okay, so my question is kind of like this, basically. So the Ten Commandments, I mean, there's all kinds of sins in the Bible, right? Um, just all over the place. And homosexuality, I guess, would be considered a sin, probably according to the Bible, um, but is there a ranking of sins, first of all? And then if there is, wouldn't sins that are in the Ten Commandments be considered much worse, like, you know, murdering someone than homosexuality? And if that is the case, wouldn't you also have to consider sins like, say, G's, OMG, um, literally just gossiping about people, stuff like that. I mean, because you have things, you know, are stealing. Wouldn't all those have to be considered even worse than homosexuality? So basically homosexuality would be like almost like blowing your nose at, at that point. Um, 
in terms of the sin hierarchy, or just all sins equal, so like murdering someone's equivalent to, you know, homosexuality is equivalent to stealing. Uh, just, it's kind of weird how that whole system works in Christianity. Um, I really don't know. So yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a lot, but uh, yeah, that's my question. Okay. Uh, it's a good question. I've often thought about that. I think a lot of people have. Um, so is there a hierarchy for sin is essentially the question. Well, I think if you just look at how God, um, through his inspiration, you know, of the word and how the people he inspired to write his words down, how they describe this, and you definitely see, you know, different punishments for different sins in the Old Testament, like some are deserving of death, some are deserving of excommunication, some are deserving of cleansing their hands, some are deserving of, you know, you sacrifice an animal, you know, to cleanse yourself of that. And there's just like a, clearly a different hierarchy there, I would say. So clearly God thinks of the consequences for certain sins differently. And I think there's a natural consequence for certain sins. Uh, if you do certain things, you know, you're more likely to um, die of something or whatever. So there's certainly, you know, natural consequences for different sins as there is God's view of different sins. But I think, too, if you look in like the New Testament, um, there's different ways of describing different sins as if some are worse than others. You know, for example, Luke 17, and it says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And that verse really summarizes everything we've talked about today. But So clearly, you know, for that, tem tempting a young person to fall into sin, uh, it would be better if you were dead, basically, or if you were cast into the sea with a rock tied around your feet so you couldn't swim out. So that's pretty intense. When you look at, like, commands against adultery and same-sex interaction, you know, the consequence of that in the Old Testament was death. So it's like God clearly sees certain sins as being you know, more at least intense and more of deserving of a greater consequence than others. I don't really know the answer to that, to be honest. I've heard some people like uh, Frank Turek, who says that, um, I really like Frank Turek, I really trust him. I don't know where he necessarily gets this from, but he does say that he believes people like Hitler are going to have a completely different experience of hell than the aborigine who never uh, heard the gospel and maybe never even communicated with another person in his life. Um, so, and that seems to make sense. I mean, God is just, so I definitely think that whatever the consequence for everyone at the judgment seat at the end of time is going to be fair. Like that's going to be fair. God is going to be just. Um, so I guess that would be my answer to that. I think there certainly is a different view of them. I don't know if it's like you can rank them one to 50 or whatever, but there's certainly different consequences for ones than there are for others. Um, so, and then this really, this other part of this passage inadvertently summarizes this whole lesson. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So how should we be with our brothers and sisters who are struggling with same-sex attraction, who are Christians? Um, hold them to account, you know, still teach what the Bible says and forgive them every time they fall and love them as much as we possibly can. And every time they repent, we forgive them. And that's how it should be for, you know, any of these sins.
Okay, so some of the written questions. I've got one on Instagram. It says, uh, which person in the Bible do you relate to the most and why? I would say two names come to mind, and that would be um, Daniel and David. Uh, I've always liked or I've always felt like um, sort of a David and Goliath, at least in sports, growing up really, really tiny. I was like 80 pounds in middle school, and I thought I was never going to grow, so I had to learn how to you know, play as a small, very, very small person against taller people. So I think in that, in terms of that, I do sympathize uh, with David, but also in sin, especially in my early teenage days, just falling for many different types of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and pride, and sympathizing with, you know, David falling in a lot of those ways as well. So I sympathize with David in terms of sort of that upbringing and then things I fall into and have fallen into. And I certainly uh, relate to, or I wouldn't say necessarily relate to, but my goal is more of a Daniel type person. Like I want to be bold like that, um, stand up in a culture that um, is anti-pray, anti-Bible, anti-Christ. So my goal is the Daniel, and I certainly sympathize more with the David. Um, So I guess that would be my answer for that. And my last written question, this was on YouTube on that video I did where I talk about Jordan Peterson's view um, of the crucifixion, basically. And this person says, "Uh, Hey, mate, not a Christian here, so I got a question for you. At around 8.30, you say that if there is a real God, you should be fearful, something like that. Why, though, isn't the Christian God the forgiving, loving one? Jesus died for us, so we don't have to be fearful. I thought that's the something version of the Bible. From what I remember, Jesus died for all of us. No? So if I am a Christian or not, have Jesus in my heart or elsewhere, I should be saved because he loves us all and died for all of us and died for all of us. I mean, either he loves us all or he loves just those that worship him, which is it? All encompassing love, dot dot dot. And then he put an edit. He said, I really liked your video though. I'm not religious, but I'm curious how you think. I just never could wrap my head around it but I seek out people who can explain to me what they think about stuff that I don't know anything about. And you did so quite eloquently. So good job. And a little smiley face there. (laughs) So I appreciate the question. Great question. Um, That's a common question, actually. And it's something that I think progressive Christians get wrong. uh, Their view that it is this type of love that saves everyone, like a universal grace, and that there's no, um, none of God's wrath or anything like that doesn't exist. And all of those things, there is God's love, and there's also God's wrath, and there's also God's justice. So all of those things are existing simultaneously, and God is in complete control. So you do have God's love, but you also have God's wrath. And I don't think Christ died for everyone in the sense that everyone is just saved. Obviously, that's not biblical. So Christ died for those who he knew would accept him. So... It's not that he doesn't love those who don't accept Christ or trust in Christ. He does love them. But um, those who reject him, the consequence of rejecting Christ is the action itself. If you reject Christ, you are without Christ, and that's the consequence. So for eternity, you will be uh, without Christ. And this is one of the biggest things, going back, this is a really relatable comment to what we talked about today. Progressive Christians do not want to address the hard facts of the Bible 
that are not fun to talk about. It's not fun. It's not appealing culturally or world to this world to talk about how those without Christ will die in their sin without Christ and live in eternity without Christ, separated from him. That's not an appealing thing, but that's what the Bible says, and that's something we have to teach. So no, um, Christ dying on the cross was not um, saving those who reject him. It's not saving those people because they rejected him. They don't trust in him. They don't believe in him. And, you know, Romans 10 uh, says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, then you will be saved. So, you know, the first part of that clearly defines what saves you. And if you don't do that part, if that part isn't true for you, then clearly you're not you're not saved. It's a really, very good question. And he's talking about, you know, so we don't have to be fearful. And I said we should be fearful. That's one of the biggest problems today is I think there is no fear of God, like at all. And that's very scary. So it's not that we should be telling people you should be terrified constantly, but there should be a, there's a I think there's a healthy fear of God and his divine power. Um, but anyway, great questions. I love, I got a lot of questions this time. I love it. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Please like and subscribe and have a good one.